There has always been a rule in my house. You must leave at least one door or window open in any given room of the house whilst you are in it. It was drilled into me since I was old enough to reach for the door handle. I didn't understand why for a while. My parents usually weren't superstitious in the slightest. I even saw from pictures that they owned a black cat a while before I was born. I rarely, if ever, questioned them though. My parents were kind, calm people, but if I ever came close to breaking the rules or even asked too many questions, they would turn serious and wouldn't let me off without a 30-minute lecture first. I didn't actually believe in the superstition, thanks in part to them not telling me what the consequences would be for not doing so, but I didn't want to anger them, even if it meant leaving a window or a door open in the cold. When I was 19 years old, however, my parents had gone to my grandmother's house to see my aunt who was visiting from Australia. I quickly volunteered to watch over the house while they were gone, which seemed to make them happy. In reality, I was just using this as an opportunity to have my girlfriend of six years over. Anya's father didn't like me very much, so I wasn't in her house very often. My parents didn't allow guests, so we mostly saw each other at school. That weekend, though, I invited her over and she arrived less than an hour after my parents had left. She knew the rule, of course, but that was mostly because it was me venting to her about it. From her perspective, I probably just had some weird parents. Maybe if she had taken it more seriously, or if I were more strict, then what happened next could have been prevented. After a while of watching movies, she went to use the bathroom but 30 minutes later, she still hadn't left. I began to grow worried, asking her if she was alright, and when I got no response, I opened the door. She wasn't inside. I looked around the room and realized that she must have closed the window while she was in there, and now she was gone. Not a great way to find out that the superstition was real, was it? Her disappearance was a big thing. Most people assumed that her father had killed her, on account of him being a big, mean Russian guy who gave everyone death threats, as well as the fact that he frequently got into arguments with his daughter. The investigation turned up nothing, of course. I didn't say anything, but I think my parents suspected something. I joined the military not long after. I guess I just hated being the house where she disappeared and somewhat harbored some resentment to my parents, and more so myself, for not being more strict with the rules. I wish I had stayed in contact with them, though. They died in a car crash last month. They left me the house, among other things. And yes, I hated the house. But it was big, and I hadn't any great places to stay in the last five years since I left. I spent last night getting drunk. That's how I've spent a lot of nights since I got discharged. Not being the house where I lost Anya wasn't good for me. And I took to the drink especially hard last night. In my drunken state, I decided to reunite myself with her. I walked into the bathroom, closed the door and window. I immediately felt a wave of nausea, though not from the alcohol. Realizing what I'd done... I sobered up pretty quickly, 
I looked through the window to see that it was pitch black outside, despite the fact that the sun had already started to set when I had entered. When I opened the door, I stepped inside the kitchen, but that wasn't right. The bathroom was located near the front of the house. The door slammed shut behind me, but when I opened it, I was in my upstairs bedroom, then my living room, then my basement, and then the guest room. It's like my house, but wrong. It's a maze of every room and story, but in the wrong places. I'm writing this from the downstairs bathroom. I found out that my phone is connected, but I'm not going to call for help. I don't want to risk anyone getting stuck in a hellish, distorted replica of the house like I'm in. There'd be no point anyway. I don't think that I have long left. I hear eerie noises from the woods outside. But it's worse than that. I've just heard footsteps. Upstairs. Hey Emma, it looks like this project is going to run late, so you'll need to pick up Josie from day camp. I'll do drop off tomorrow morning instead. I was just shocked by the voicemail. It wasn't that it was unlike Mike to impose on my time and expect him to fix his problems. In fact, that was a large part of the reason he was my ex. But to think I was going to drop everything and pick up some random kid after we'd split six years ago was over the top even for him. After listening to the message, I called and told him as much. This isn't funny, Emma. Just because it's my day to pick up our child, you're going to pretend that I cut him off and asked if he had meant to call me or if he had gotten involved with a different Emma, because I didn't have a kid. Certainly not with him, of all people. Oh, so now you're going to pretend you're not Emma Sanders. You're so fucking childish sometimes, he said before hanging up. I blocked the number, figuring it was probably some prank. Maybe he'd finally started that podcast he'd been dreaming of while we were together, but not actually putting forth any effort into making it a reality, and this was material for it. Not five minutes later, the phone rang again. My mum. Convenient, since I was about to call her anyway to vent. Mike called and asked me to get Josie, because he said you wouldn't. What's going on? The room tilted and it felt like something sharp pierced my heart. Mike might try gaslighting me, I guess, but my own mother? Never. Gulping back a sob, I insisted that I didn't know any Josie. I wasn't a mother at all. Why were she and Mike doing this to me? She didn't even like him. And now she was pretending we had a lifetime connection in the form of a little girl. I'm not sure how much of my speech was coherent because she didn't respond to any of it. She urged me to stay where I was, and she assured me she was on her way. When she arrived, only the driver's door popped open. That was good. My relief was short-lived, because she stepped inside and announced she'd dropped Josie off to play with my friend Carmen and her son. Are you feeling alright? Did you hit your head recently? Genuine concern was etched on her face. I'm ashamed to admit I grabbed my mum and dragged her through the house demanding she show me one sign that I shared it with a child. She skidded to a stop in front of the spare room and asked me what I'd done with Josephine's things. 
Jesus, Emma, when did you have the time to dismantle the furniture? Wasn't Josie here this morning? Where has she been sleeping? It's an incredibly helpless feeling when your lifelong source of comfort delivers a massive dose of pain and confusion. I want her out, but couldn't bring myself to say it. Even in my frazzled state, I knew that if she walked towards the door, I'd throw myself in front of it and beg her not to leave. When she put her arm around me and half walked me, half carried me to the bed, I didn't object. My night was plagued with a dream of a child with a smooth, featureless face framed by hair that had Mike's ash-brown colouring and my waves. The scent of breakfast filled the air. My mum met me in the hall and whispered that Carmen had dropped Josephine off because Mike was coming to take her to camp. She asked if I felt any better and looked crushed to learn that I had still no memory of her granddaughter. She announced that when Mike and Josie were gone, she was going to take me to the hospital. It sounded good to me. At least one of us needed to be evaluated, and I was going to ask her to see the records of this supposed birth. Part of me wanted to hide in my room, but I needed to see this child. Don't say anything to upset her, please. The statement was gentle, but with a hint of warning, and it rattled me. I was used to being the recipient of that protective streak, not being treated like a potential source of harm. I brushed past my mum and glanced around. Kitchen, empty. Living room was the same. I winced at my mum's bony elbow jabbed me in the ribs. Say something, she hissed. Your daughter said good morning. I briefly entertained the possibility that it was afflicted by some kind of amnesia, but my eyesight and hearing were just fine. Nobody said anything. There was nobody else here to say anything. There were two plates of pancakes on the table. How did mum explain that? Josie doesn't like pancakes, Em, she patiently explained. She had a banana. I was unravelling. My head felt like it was on fire. Oh, and where's the peel? Let me guess, it's in the garbage, just like her bed and mattress and all her fictional toys. Yes, I threw the peel away. I didn't know you'd need evidence of your child eating. My mum had entered the kitchen, kneeling down and circling her arms loosely in front of her cradling an invisible body. I couldn't help it. I went over and waved my hand through the empty space. Horrified, my mum acted like she was hefting something up into her arms and rushed from the room. I felt suffocated, and the only thing on my mind was getting out of there. I went back to my room and got dressed and then got my keys. I could see my mum standing in the backyard, pacing and talking on the phone as I backed out of the driveway and sped down the road. The trip ended at a hotel in the next town. The constant ringing my phone sawed away at my remaining shred of sanity. I tried to find something fun on TV for a distraction, but that failed, because the only free channels were news stations, and they were all talking about some man who'd been found pulverised in his pool. I called the police and get a wellness check for my mother, but when I told them my name, I was told something that nearly made me pass out. Miss Sanders, I am glad you called. Please just come down to the station and talk. We know it was a terrible accident. We know you didn't see her. We just want to make sure you're safe and that you don't do anything to compound this terrible tragedy. Apparently, when I left the house earlier, I backed out over Josie.
I'm sure some of you are concerned for my safety about my last post. I think that now is the time to update everyone on what has happened since. Many of you in the comments suggest that the footsteps that I heard must be from Anya, so I set out looking for her not long after. It's strange, seeking out something in this maze. I'd step through a door into the kitchen, hear footsteps upstairs, then I'd walk through the door into the upstairs bathroom, seemingly hearing footsteps from the next room, only to end up in the attic and hear footsteps below me. As I made my way around the house, I began to notice some things. The house wasn't an exact replica of my own. The paint was fresher on the walls. The mirrors were cleaner. The carpets were different colors. Most noticeably of all, though, was the radio and phone looked like they were from the 30s. I even saw a typewriter. Eventually, a little under two hours later, I stepped into the kitchen and at last I was faced with Anya. Eric, how are you here? She asked. The same way that you got here. How are you alive? I responded. As soon as you leave a room, it returns to its original state. As if you had never set foot in it. That's why the fridge always restocks itself, she explained. No offense, Eric, but you look like you haven't slept in a while, or shaved. Kind as ever, I replied, and both of us laughing half-heartedly, still tense from the very nature of our current situation. At least you put on some muscle. You used to be like a stick figure, she laughed again. You look a little different yourself. Your sense of fashion has changed a bit. She had changed a lot. Her hair, which I remembered as being shoulder length, was much longer now. She also appeared thinner and paler, probably from being inside the house for the last five years. More noticeably, however, was the fact that her outfit looked to be from the 1930s. These are the best clothes I could find in the wardrobe upstairs. They suit me, no? She smiled sadly. Eric, why are you here? I... I guess I thought I'd save you. Or at least end up being with you. I frowned. Perhaps there is some way that you can save me, she said after a brief hesitation. She gestured to the window, gazing at the trees. I noticed something strange. The branches seemed to be shifting every couple of seconds, appearing on different parts of the trees. Then, seconds later, the leaves would be orange, then green, and the tree would be bare of leaves. Then I saw something horrifying. A seemingly regular deer walked by the house, but after a couple of seconds, its antlers and legs were in the wrong place, then its eyes, then its entire head, all appearing on different parts of the body every few seconds, and the poor animal cried in agony. I heard the same sound from deeper in the woods. Eventually, the deer returned to its regular state and ran deeper into the woods before its cries resumed. What's happening to them? I asked Anya. The further they stray from the house, the more distorted they become, she said solemnly. You said I could save you. How? Eric, when I arrived here, I met someone about a month later. 
There was a woman, Delilah. She claimed to be a witch. I was skeptical, obviously, but seconds prior I had seen a deer with its hind legs protruding from its neck, so I figured I'd let her finish speaking. Were you close with Caroline, your grandmother, on your father's side? She asked me. She vanished when I was five. Her mind had been going for some time at that point, but my parents always said that I was her favorite. Why? Delilah told me that when your grandmother's mind was going, she visited her, requesting her services. Caroline wanted to go back to her childhood. Anya proceeded to recite the story. The spell was to feed off of my grandmother's memories and send her to a pocket dimension mimicking her childhood, so that way she wouldn't have to deal with the pains of her old age and failing mind. The plan was that she'd seal herself in her old room that night, disappear from this world and wake up as a child in her 1930s pocket dimension. Delilah went to check up on her about 10 years after casting the spell. Apparently she does the same for all clients. But when she visited the pocket dimension, she found Anya trapped inside. The pocket dimension had tried to draw on Caroline's fractured memories and ended up creating this distortion of her childhood home, constantly trying to replicate it. Why didn't you stop it? I asked Anya. Delilah went to confront Caroline. She told me that I'd be in and out in ten minutes, but she never came back, she responded. Wait, my grandmother is here? In the house? That's why I think that you can save me. Perhaps she'll recognize you and end this somehow. It's our best shot. She led me through the house, and after about three hours, we ended up in the upstairs hallway. I looked at the end, the entrance to my grandmother's old room. Anya and I braced ourselves and walked through the door. Sitting on the bed was my grandmother, just as I remembered her. But a few seconds later, it was a young girl, then a middle-aged woman, then a teenage girl and then my elderly grandmother once again. Grandma, it's Eric. She stopped staring blankly ahead, then blinked a few times. She looked old and confused, but when she met my eyes, a look of realization dawned on her face. Oh, Eric, you've gotten so big. Grandma, you need to stop this, please. She looked much more awake than before. I can't wait to go back. I'm close. If I can just get this right, I can go back to when it was easier. I know, Grandma, but you've been sitting here, trying to recite this for 18 years in the real world. 18? 18? Please, Grandma, just let it go. Let us go. You can rest. There were tears in her eyes. Then she slammed them shut, and I was faced with a skeleton lying down on the bed. Anya and I looked around to see that we were back in the real house. The real world. We had hugged each other excitedly, but she was crying. I buried Grandma Caroline in the backyard, outside the house. I think she would have liked that. 
The house isn't cursed anymore, thankfully. Anya is understandably baffled as to how many things have changed in the last five years, but she has developed an interest in some really old-timey fashion. I think it might take her a while to adjust. I'm glad I was given an opportunity to save Anya and give my grandmother some peace. Even still, though, I hope I wasn't left anything else cursed in my inheritance. I'm a 34-year-old ex-donor, high school dropout. I spent most of my formative years goofing off, screwing around and coasting through life without a care for the future, like I thought the world was going to end the next day. When it became apparent that this wasn't going to happen, when I finally matured somewhat and started taking things more seriously, it was already too late, and I was woefully unprepared for facing life in the real world. My parents finally got fed up with my shenanigans and kicked me out at 26, giving me £1,000 in cash to get started and leaving me to fend for myself. I can't say I blame them. Who wants to spend the rest of their life supporting a freeloading slacker without any direction in life? I got a job in the city, found a relatively cheap apartment and began taking online classes, eventually earning a GED. I work as an after-hours security guard in an office building in the city. I'm not going to tell you where exactly I live. The job's relatively easy. I sit in a small room for 12 hours a day looking at a bank of CCTV monitors, do a sweep of the building once every hour during my shift, and report any unusual activity on the phone to my supervisor at the district HQ. The job gives me a lot of downtime. Mostly I just sit on my ass watching YouTube videos on my phone and listening to music. Sounds like a great setup, right? Basically, I get paid to do nothing. Did I mention I was a security guard? The trade-off is I get paid shit, and it's not like there's a lot of room for career advancement in my line of work. Plus, living in the city isn't cheap. Between rent, utilities, groceries and bus fare, I usually have about £20 in disposable income at the end of the month. So when the old piece of shit RCA box TV I brought to my apartment from my home finally went toes up, it's not like I could afford to buy a new one. I decided to go to the local Goodwill and see what they had to offer. Goodwill's a crazy place and you never know what you'll find there, what deals you might score. My luck was in that day, and I immediately found a nearly brand new Samsung 7 Series Ultra HD flat screen with a 43 inch screen. Normally it would cost over £300, but I was able to get it for only 60 which was still a bit more than I felt comfortable spending. I took my new purchase home and set it up, marvelling at the crystal clear high definition picture. It was easily the best £60 I had ever spent. It didn't take me long to realise that there was something odd about my new TV though. That night, my night off, I watched a new episode of a current hit network series. I didn't think much of it at the time, but the next morning, when I was on Facebook discussing the episode with a few friends I had made there, they had no idea what I was talking about when I described the plot. They told me last night's episode had been nothing like what I described. They told me I was nuts and suggested that maybe I'd been watching a different show by mistake. We argued about it for a while, then I signed out. 
I didn't really know or care about these people. I figured they were probably trolling me or some kind of joke. Except that's when I went to Wikipedia and read the synopsis for the episode in question. I was surprised to see they were right. Last night's episode had been the one they had claimed to have seen, not the one I distinctively remembered seeing myself. I tried to explain it to myself by reasoning that maybe what I had seen had been a rerun of the show I hadn't seen before. Maybe I had been on the wrong channel or had fallen asleep without realising it and dreamt the entire thing. I even thought that perhaps it had been a DVR the previous owners had left in the TV's programming or something. I shrugged it off and had pretty much forgotten about the entire incident by the time I had to leave for work. I worked my shift and got off at 4am. The next morning I took the bus home and went straight to bed. Late the next morning while eating breakfast of cold pop tarts and some reheated leftover coffee from the previous morning. Yeah, I admit I'm a bit of a slob, but hey, I'm 30 something bachelor, give me a break. I flipped on my new TV and watched the news. The female newscaster had a solemn expression. Tragedy this morning downtown when the number C subway train derailed at 8.42am, leaving a dozen people dead and 20 more critically injured. I changed the channel, not wanting to hear that depressing bullshit. I channel surfed for about an hour, not really paying much attention to what I was seeing. There wasn't much interesting on, so I turned on Netflix and watched The Big Lebowski, one of my all-time favourites. I followed the less than spectacular adventure of the dudes, Walter and Donnie for the next couple of hours, and by then it was close to noon, so I turned off the TV and went and got some lunch and done some shopping before I had to leave for work later that afternoon. Later that day, at work, I was down in the parking garage on my break, having a cigarette and shooting the shit with the garage attendant, a heavy-set, grey-haired old guy named Carl, who I had kind of made buddies with. In passing, I mentioned a subway accident earlier that morning, and he gave me a puzzled look. He said he hadn't heard anything about any subway derailment that day. He asked me which train had derailed, and I told him it had been the number C at 8.42 that morning. You're crazy, he replied with a snort. I took the train to work this morning at 8.30, and everything was just fine. I took out my phone to prove it to him, and looked up the morning's news but couldn't find no mention of any subway derailment in the city. I got home early the next morning, feeling deeply troubled by what had happened. First I had seen an episode of a TV show no one else claimed had aired. Then I had heard a news broadcast about a subway accident that had apparently never happened. What the fuck was going on? Was I seeing things, or had I imagined it all? Maybe I wasn't getting enough sleep or something. Or maybe there was some kind of glitch in that TV. Maybe it was showing me old programming or something, and that subway derailment had actually happened in the past. I had some trouble getting to sleep that morning, feeling distinctly unsettled by what was going on. Nothing unusual happened for the next five days, mostly because I mainly watched movies on an old syndicated show on Netflix instead of current programming. I followed my usual weekly routine and had pretty much forgotten about the bizarre events of earlier that week. By the time it was my night off and time for me to watch the same current TV series I had watched a week before, it was another new episode, a follow-up to the pilot of the previous weeks. I watched it and then went to bed. 
I woke the next morning to find my phone was packed with Facebook messages from the people in the group I had belonged to. Some of them were amazed, some of them curious. Some of them seemed downright disturbed, maybe even a little frightened. All their messages boiled down to basically the same thing. How the fuck had I known what the next episode was going to be in about a week in advance? I was confused at first, then slowly it dawned on me. I did a quick search for the synopsis of the last night's episode. It wasn't the episode I had seen the previous evening. It was the episode I had seen the week before. The episode they all argued hadn't aired. I felt a chill crawl up my spine. I didn't answer any of the messages. In fact, I deleted my Facebook account right then and there. I sat there in the bed for over an hour. Even then, I still tried to rationalise what had happened. None of the people I knew on Facebook lived in the same city I did. I knew most TV shows film all new season episodes well in advance. Maybe the satellite that provided the network feed to the people who lived in my area had screwed up and skipped an episode, showing me the one that was supposed to air after it. It actually kind of made sense. Well, to an extent. Even still, I didn't really feel in the mood for watching any TV that morning. I listened to music instead while I did some much overdue chores, cleaning my apartment, doing my laundry, washing my dishes, then went downtown to run a few personal errands. Then I went to work and did my usual 12 hour routine of sitting on my ass in the security office, goofing off on my phone and occasionally checking the monitors to make sure there weren't any fires, burglars or zombie serial killers in the building. I went down on my break to the parking garage to have my usual cigarette to make chit chat with Carl. We stood around for about 10 minutes, smoking and making small talk, not really talking about anything important. I casually asked him if he watched the TV series I did and he just grunted and shook his head. I can't stand TV shows about a bunch of privileged yuppie assholes whining about their problems. I can't relate to that shit. I just shrugged and that was pretty much that. A few minutes later my break was nearly up, so I put out my smoke and we said goodbye. I finished the rest of my shift, then went home and went to sleep. I spent most of the next morning and early afternoon playing video games. When I came into the building around 4, the manager was waiting for me with a grim expression. What's up? I asked him, concerned. You didn't hear? He asked me. No? Hear what? Carl, the parking garage attendant's dead. I was shocked. How? Didn't you see the news? He was killed in that subway train derailment this morning. I felt a sense of unreality wash over me. A feeling of deja vu. I felt like I was having a dream. What, what, what time did it happen? I asked the manager. My voice sounding far away. This morning at 8.42, he was on his way to work. Which train was it? I asked him, already knowing the answer. The sea train. For a second I felt lightheaded. I thought I was going to faint. I willed myself to clear my head and get a grip. I thanked the manager for telling me, expressing sadness at Carol's death. I clocked in at four, then went into the security room and sat there in front of the monitors. My mind was reeling. It was apparent what was happening had been for some time, but I had been in denial before then. But now, in the front of Carol's death, 
I had to acknowledge the truth of it myself. The TV I had bought second hand from Goodwill store for £60 could somehow, some way, receive broadcasts from a week into the future. Could, in effect, predict the future. I didn't know how, I didn't know why, and frankly, I didn't care. I sat there dwelling on this, considering the ramifications of it all. I felt a kernel of wild excitement building up within me as I thought of the possibilities. I had to force it down and keep myself in check. I could tell everything that was going to happen a week before it actually did. Sports scores, the weather, politics, natural disasters, crime, accidents. The list went on and on. I felt a sense of guilt in there as well as I'd had the chance to prevent Carol's death, but hadn't acted on it while I had the opportunity. But told myself that even if I had accepted what was going on before the subway accident and tried to warn him, he wouldn't have believed me anyway. I thought of the good I could do with my newfound power to foresee future events. I could prevent crime, save lives. I could learn the outcome of the next presidential election a week before anyone else did. I could even… A wild idea suddenly occurred to me and I bolted upright, galvanised with excitement at the tempting plausibility of it. The Powerball lottery drawing was tonight at 11. The jackpot was currently at over 500 million. I debated it briefly in my mind, the morality and the ethics of it, then said fuck it to morality and ethics. I called my supervisor and told him in no uncertain terms where he could insert my job, then left the office building for the last time, feeling giddy and almost whimsical. I took the bus back home, knowing that I wouldn't have to rely on shitty public transportation for much longer. In a couple more weeks, I would be driving myself around in a new Rolls Royce. I raced up to my apartment and turned on my miraculous new TV, waiting anxiously with a pad and pen as the hours passed and 11 o'clock slowly crept around. I watched eagerly as the little plastic balls bounced around in their machine, jotting each of the lucky six on my pad as they rolled down the chute one by one into the clear glass tube. I stared in awe at the six numbers I had written down. In a week I was going to be 500 million richer. I had finally discovered a way to rig the lottery that not only worked but was perfectly legal. No one would ever know. I was rich, could finally start living the life I had always dreamed of. Could, on TV, there was a sudden interruption. A special news report. A grim-faced newscaster sat at the anchor desk. He spoke solemnly, trying to remain composed on air, but his voice broke with an edge of panic several times as he spoke. This is a special Channel 13 news report. The White House has just released a statement. At approximately 9.27 Eastern Standard Time this morning, NASA detected an asteroid with 100 mile diameter on a direct collision course with Earth. Scientists predict it will enter our atmosphere within the next week and impact with a velocity of 60 miles a second, causing worldwide extinction, and there's nothing that can be done about it. The end of the world is upon us. I stared at the TV in shock. This couldn't really be happening. I changed the channels rapidly. It was the same in all other networks. One newscaster said that rioting and looting was already breaking out in all major cities as a panic took hold on the streets. They then cut to the Pope at the Vatican leading the world in prayer, speaking in Italian with an interpreter translating into English. O oh, our God, 
We are heartily sorry for offending thee. I turned off the TV, feeling numb. I looked down at the now useless winning parable numbers I had written down. I tore up the piece of paper. I went to the window and looked out of the calm city street below, then up at the night sky above. I stood there for a while, lost in thought. Then I sighed, got out my phone and called up an old buddy of mine who used to score for me and also lived in the city. I told him I wanted an ounce of dank weed and he said he could hook me up the next day. Why the fuck not, I thought to myself as I ended the call. Now was a good time as any to fall back into old habits. I used to coast through life without a care for the future, like I thought the world was going to end soon. Now I have an excuse. In my last post, I was certain that the curse on my house had been lifted. I think I might have jumped the gun on that. This morning, when I went downstairs, I couldn't find the computer that I bought last week. I thought that maybe a burglary had happened while I was away in the pocket dimension. I mean, it wouldn't exactly be difficult, considering that the windows and doors are usually left open. The television was still there, sure, but it probably wouldn't be a burglar's main priority. I mean, the thing is nearly 20 years old, but looking beside it, I saw my old PlayStation 3. But I had sold that years ago, around 2015, I think. I walked to the kitchen and I saw the old radio that my mother had thrown out a decade ago. On the counter, I found the keys to the car that my father had sold a year before I moved out. Something was very wrong. I was suspicious at that point. I returned to the kitchen, emptied the contents of the fridge onto the floor, then left the room. When I opened the door again, the floor was clean, and the fridge was full again. It had returned to its original state, as I had remembered it. It was then that I put the pieces together. When my grandmother died, her pocket dimension didn't go away. We didn't even leave it. The spell is now drawing on my childhood memories instead of my grandmother's. The reason her house and more so the world outside it were so distorted is due to her failing memory. My memories of my childhood house are intact, sure, even some parts of the surrounding forest that I used to play in, so that's why the house isn't constantly shifting and changing like last time. But the spell that caused this whole thing concentrates on memories of the home. The further away from the home, the more distorted the world of the pocket dimension becomes. And 15 minutes before, Anya said that she was driving to town to buy some groceries. I rushed to my father's car and sped down the road. After a few minutes of driving, I began to hear the eerie noises from the woods that I had heard once upon entering the pocket dimension, which I now knew were the cries of the distorted animals deep in the forest. Not long after, the trees began to distort, changing shape, height, and color in moments. Finally, after ten minutes of driving, I saw it. In the distance, my mother's car, which Anya had taken, was being distorted. I stepped out of my car and heard it. Anya was screaming. She was trapped inside the vehicle, and she was being distorted along inside. 
I wanted to run over and pull her out of the vehicle, but I knew if I stayed any further, I'd become distorted too. With tears in my eyes, I drove back to the replica of my home and wrote this. There's not much battery left in my phone, and when it dies, so does my connection to the world outside this nightmare. When my grandmother died, this spell, this curse, began drawing on my memories because I was closest person inside the pocket dimension. I think that if I die, I will transfer to Anya and feed off of her memories instead. She will still be stuck in this hellhole, but from her screams, I'm certain that anything is better than the distortion she suffers now. It's the only solution I think of, considering Delilah, the one who cast the spell in the first place, either got herself killed or gave up trying to end it. That is why this will be my final update. Goodbye.